episode 120 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hi guys, my name is Swain Martin. I'm a pilot at Envoy Air, American Eagle. I fly an Embraer 145 out of Chicago O'Hare, and I run a YouTube channel dedicated to showing professional pilots and aspiring pilots a little bit about their career. Aviation, welcome back to what is YouTube week on the Pilot the Pilot podcast. If you didn't listen to Tuesday's episode or the last episode, it was with Kelsey from 74 Gear. He makes some great videos on YouTube and also great follow on Instagram. Today is none other than Swain Martin. Swain has been documenting his career for some time now. He has shown you what it's like to fly 135 out in the island of Hawaii. He's shown you what it's like in the Embraer, and he's written a lot of great stuff for Bold Method as well. One of the things I really love about how Swain has done this and created this content is he has done it the right way. He has made sure that he has complied with the FAA. He's gone above and beyond to make sure he worked with and had it written out. So if anyone does ever come in to question, hey, I don't like necessarily what you're doing here. He had it kind of written out the plan. He worked with the FAA, made sure that they were okay with everything he was doing. So when he was so so when someone was kind of upset with what they saw, he was like, oh, sorry, FAA already proved it. Here's a stamp. Here's a signature. We're all good to go. So uh, I definitely encourage you to go down that route if you want to be a content creator. It seems like everyone wants to have a YouTube channel. So if you are, make sure you're doing it safe because it just takes one person to report you. I'm sure every single aviation content creator out there has had a time where someone might have reported them or they've done something where they maybe they didn't think they should do, but they kept on a video. So be careful if you do go down that route, but definitely model after Swain. He's been doing it the right way. He's been doing it for a long time. So he has some great, great content. Aviation, Nation, this is a great episode. I was really excited to have Swain on the podcast and I look forward to having him on in the future sometime as well. But it's going to be a good one. I hope you enjoy. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. And uh, also check out Patreon, buy me a coffee. We have tons of links on our website to check out that you can go check out. I also want to go and give a sneak preview, not necessarily a preview, but just put a little feeler out there. I want to further this, this brand. I want to make it more than just my podcast. So if you have any interest in content creation and you want to kind of maybe be under the Pilot the Pilot brand, please send me an email, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. That could be writing, it could be podcast, it could be a lot of things. So just let me know. I'm looking to, to see where this could go. And who knows, you could be having yourself your own podcast, you could be writing articles, YouTube channel, whatever. So uh, send me an email, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. I'll be looking forward to those and seeing what we all can Aviation, I want to keep you any longer. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And without any further ado, here's Swain Martin. Swain, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem, man. I'm excited to have you on. I, I've been trying to get you on. We have a mutual friend in Martin Rottler, who uh, will friend your boss, kind of, I guess, maybe in a weird way. Not sure how that relationship works, but uh, he was my teacher and uh, he was like, hey, get Swain on, get Swain on. So you know, here we are. We, we finally got oh, you on. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Martin's a great guy. Yeah, we, we work together at Envoy, I guess, technically, yeah, Martin, in a way, is my boss. Um, yeah, that's great. I saw that he was on with you uh, recently, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's uh, he did my aviation communications class now, so he probably thinks he is the reason why I have a podcast in aviation, which is should have stemmed from aviation communications, right? <laughs> oh, that's cool. I didn't even we didn't even have a course like that at UND. That's kind of a, a neat thing. I didn't know that even existed. Yeah, man, Ohio State. What can I say? It's just a, a far nice. superior <laughs> aviation school than North Dakota. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But hey, man, that's uh, that actually brings up some good points, and we can talk about why you chose North Dakota, why you chose all that a little bit later. But right now, I really just want to focus on 
why you wanted to become a pilot? Was it always a goal of yours to become a pilot or did it come along later in life? Sure. So I started flight training when I was 15. Um, you know, I'm the only person in my family who flies. I don't actually have any direct family who are involved in aviation at all. My grandfathers were both really big into aviation. Neither were pilots. So, so they used to take me to air shows, build models, things like that for me that kind of sparked, um, I guess, the interest when I was a kid. And then when I was in high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, I had friends who were super successful at all the things that they were good at, like soccer, tennis, being in uh, student council, things like that in school. And I, I didn't really have anything for myself that I could be like, this is my one thing that I'm really good and passionate at. Um, so that's when I kind of picked it up and I was like, hey, I should actually try to take a flight lesson. Um, so I guess that's the, the basic start to how it all how, how it all happened. Did you have anything else other than aviation? Was it like, oh, I like aviation, but I also maybe want to be a doctor. Was there anything else that competed with aviation for a possible career? Yeah, there was. Um, the other thing that I really was passionate about, um, I really liked international relations. So when I was a junior in high school, um, one of my best friends in the world, Zaid al-Maghrabi, we, uh, he was from Jordan and I went and lived with him in Jordan for a month. And I just, I really had a passion for travel and interacting with people from different cultures. So the other, the other side of things that I had considered going down um, was sort of like an international relations, international business sort of track because I like that um, kind of global commerce stuff, which in a way is sort of like aviation. So I guess I, I was able to kind of do both by, uh, by going down this track. Yeah, as I say, both of those sound like they, they can bring in aviation to that with the travel aspect of it, which is, just goes to show how kind of complex aviation can be and how you can have just so many crazy careers that could include aviation and not necessarily be an airline pilot. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable how we can connect things together. And yeah, I was very fortunate to find a job that sort of encompassed a few different passions of mine into one little package. Yeah. Were you the, uh, the only friend or the only person in your friend group or even high school that wanted to be a pilot? I was, yeah. I was the only person in my entire high school, I guess, who was doing it at all. So I, I guess I was a little bit unique in that aspect. Um, you know, and I was always jealous of people that I would see online who were my age who had little friend groups where people were flying together. And I, I didn't really have any of that when I was growing up and sort of found that uh, a little bit later in life past high school. Um, but yeah, I, I missed out on that, I guess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, same. I <laughs> I still look at Instagram right now and I see people that have kind of like these little flying communities like Schmindy. I don't know if you follow her on Instagram. She does. Yeah, yeah, plane of and she, do, yeah. Yeah. And she lives in a pretty much right by an airport. Her her house backs up to an airport and they're all flying together. Uh, another one of my friends, Kim in Georgia, she does the same thing. It's like, dang, I really want, like we're in aviation, but I still wish I had like a, a private general aviation community to go hang out and just do a lot of fun stuff. I know I'd love to, I'd love to be more involved with that group one day. And, um, you know, just living in a, a community where there is a little bit more general aviation, that's definitely something I guess I aspire to. Uh, in the future. So that's good. I mean, I've, it's really funny because a lot of people that are starting out flying right now are kind of like, man, I really want to fly the airlines and I really want to do this. And they kind of, kind of push past and don't really enjoy the time that they're in with, uh, within their training or just flying a 172. And then when you get to that level, you kind of look back on it and are you looking at other people flying a 172 or gliders? And you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds so much fun. I wish I was just flying a glider right now or a 172 or just kind of kicking it in a, in a Piper Cub, you know? I know I miss it so much. I'm actually I have a plan in about two weeks to to go back and get single engine current. It's been a little over half a year since I've flown in something smaller, just because the job uh, that I have now has taken up so much time, and I don't have the same access I used to uh, to smaller airplanes. So I have a a plan to go down in a friend's airplane, and we're going to try to fly to the 
uh, SpaceX launch in Florida on the 27th. So hopefully I can go and go and have a little bit more GA flying in, in just a few weeks. So that that'd should be, cool. be good. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Uh, let's take it back a little bit. So 15, you uh, started doing your training. What, as a 15-year-old who a lot of times in flying, it's kind of you need the maturity to handle flying. Did you feel like you were fully ready as a 15-year-old to to kind of accept this career and go after it and then go full-blown? I did, but I also couldn't do it alone. I mean, one of the first things that I did when I was that age, I actually had to sort of pitch my dad on the idea of becoming a pilot, um, going to flight school, everything that it would take to get there. Um, he's a business professor. And so he literally made me sort of sit down and give him a pitch for what I wanted to do. Um, so you can imagine 15 year old me sitting there in Starbucks having to sort of pitch my dad on this idea. But one of the first things that I did to make it work was I reached out to people online that I could find literally any airline pilot that had a blog or YouTube channel or something like that. That was the resource for me to learn about the career and start interacting with people. So I reached out to two pilots. One was at Delta and one was an American, both who had um, some blogs online and they sort of mentored me, gave me tips, gave me some ways to get started, and then encouraged me to start actually writing and producing my own content. And so that was, I guess, how it started. But I definitely couldn't have done it alone. Did you start doing your own content when you were 15, when you were doing your training? I did. So I started this little blog called From Private to Professional Pilot, which sort of kicked off everything. So I wanted to create a website where people like me who didn't have a flight training background or anybody in aviation could go online and learn a little bit about the firsthand view of what it would be like to go through their initial private pilot training, more focused on like a local flight school, not just, you know, a larger 141 track that helps you learn everything and sort of has a, a very you know set format for you to get through. So I created that website, which eventually sort of led to me getting involved with two of my business partners at Bold Method and also me producing YouTube content. So it all sort of stemmed from there when I was a student pilot producing um, and writing sort of my own content online. And I never knew that it would grow into the way, into the things that it has today, but that's how it all started. Yeah, it's really interesting when, when people talk about uh, creating content because everyone kind of has this idea of wanting to create content. They want to have some kind of platform where they can have, can they help make a difference? They can help make a change. They can help educate. And it, it's very interesting that it, it takes a while to build that. Wouldn't you agree? Like, it, I think the hardest time of doing that is maybe your first year or even uh, the first couple months because you're not going to have the traction that you actually want. Did you have that same kind of uh, challenges when you started? I definitely would say that. I guess the the bigger, I guess, obstacle for me when I was in high school doing this, I wasn't as focused on the initial traction because back then, interestingly enough, in like 2014. The whole aviation social media thing really hadn't kicked off the way that it is today. There really weren't people on YouTube and um, Instagram and things like that who were getting big. It was all sort of at the, like, the roots of it starting right around that time frame. So I guess I wasn't as focused on trying to like meet a standard. The obstacle for me was that um, I had to, I was doing this and doing it in an unusual, unique way, contrary to the way that many of my friends were operating in high school. So I would get, you know, like, poked on by my friends who are like, oh, you're writing this blog. What are you doing? Like, this isn't, you know, why are you, <laughs> why are you doing any of this? And it was frustrating at times. I was like, guys, like, this is something I actually really want to do. And I'm glad that I ignored them because see what it's turned into today, you know? And it's just one of those things where you, you have to remind yourself, never look sideways and just kind of keep doing what you're doing because you're passionate about it. I guess that was the, the obstacle for me was just 
making sure that other people weren't going to, I guess, kind of push me off the track I wanted to go down. It's so funny with, uh, so my close friends and the, the people closest to me were the biggest fear of me starting this podcast. I was afraid of doing this podcast because of what they would say, what they would think. Not necessarily the the thousands and millions of people that might listen to it in the future, but it was just the closest friends I had be like, wow, this is embarrassing. He thinks he can have a podcast. Right. Isn't it funny how that works? I mean, it's kind of, it, it's kind of sad in a way, you know, that like, it ends up happening where you already you know kind of self-conscious about the way that your close friends or family might view what you're doing. But in the end, I mean, if you if you produce something that's quality and you're doing it for a good reason, I think people see that. And then obviously, when you do have success with it one day, and as you have with the the podcast over a hundred episodes now, people are like, "Wow, he's actually you know doing something with it." And there's people that he's brought on that are uh, that are really well known in the aviation community. So. When you just keep pressing and pressing, that's when that's when people find success, regardless of the industry. Absolutely, it takes it takes a while to get there, and I think the hardest thing was just uh, just getting to the level that you want, and it's never enough. Like you always want more. You always want. I'm sure with YouTube, it's like, all right, cool, I have a hundred thousand. Now I want five hundred thousand. You get five hundred thousand. Now you want a million. It's like you always have something you're chasing, and you're never fully satisfied with what you have and what you're creating in some way. Right. Yeah, I, I can agree with that 100%. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, uh, a little tangent there. But uh, I want to get back to training. What was it like training as 15? What, did uh, flying come pretty easy to you? There's a lot of you couldn't drive yourself to the airport. You know, you, you were young. Right, and you just right. had that. Kind of talk a little bit about some of the difficulties or some of the, the wins that you had in, early on in your training at 15. Yeah. So I guess, um, as you said, you know, when I, when I did start so young, I was getting literally driven to flight lessons by my parents. Um, and even when I was soloing, I still had to get dropped off at the airport because of the way the law works, um, 16, I think in three months in Virginia was when I could drive by myself, but at 16, I was already flying by myself. So it was kind of one of those weird, weird ways the regulations work. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I guess I would say the, the actual flying aspect came relatively easily. I mean, I experienced the normal roadblocks that most people do crosswind landing, some of the steep turn stuff. I just remember a few of those roadblocks, but it wasn't anything that I guess I didn't like push myself to just sort of overcome. And I, I never really got like a negative attitude about it. I had a few different instructors during my training because some went on to different um, airlines or the military. So I was exposed to a few different instructors with different teaching and flying techniques, which I think actually ended up helping me out in the end. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, the experience was really good. The only thing that I, I would say was the biggest challenge for me, and I still see this at smaller flight schools around the country, is that when you're not at a program like a 141 uh, track school and your goal is to become a professional pilot one day, there's not a lot of training structure involved a lot of the time. I was really teaching myself a lot of the knowledge, the ground school stuff. I didn't ever sit through a actual ground school. There was no sit down class instruction at all. I had to teach myself everything out of the Jeppesen private pilot textbook or like sporties online courses, things like that to take my FAA knowledge exams and get ready for my check ride. It, it, there wasn't a lot of um, traditional ground school you know, mandated lessons the way that I found, for instance, at UND later on. So I think that's a, a big hurdle to overcome. And you find a lot of students that have a big drop off there um, because they don't they don't have the structure. And it's not such a bad thing sometimes in aviation to have that structure in place. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would agree with that too. So I went to Ohio State, got my private there, then did all the rest of my training down in Charlotte. 
And there's definitely a difference between a 141 type training at a university and a local 61 school. I mean, you have to put in probably a little bit more effort. It's up to you how fast you want to go or 141 school is you, they have this material, they have this uh, lesson plan and you have to, to maintain it and kind of go and listen, play by the beat of their drum or the 61 school, you're, you're going by the beat of your own drum. And it is on you. It's uh, you, if your instructor's not strong in ground school, then you have to do it on your own. There might not be another instructor for you to go to, or you just have to utilize some free materials, YouTube, or even pay for online ground school to help supplement that knowledge. And uh, you're right, that that definitely can be an issue when you want to go down the the airline road, and especially when it's going to lead you into a pretty intense 121 ground training at your first regional. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting way to get started. And I, I guess I was very fortunate to experience both. I mean, I liked the fact that I had some Part 61 experience and then went down the Part 141 track at UND. So I kind of saw the the two sides, I guess. But um, it, it was interesting. But getting over that, you know, if you have the right motivation, it's not too hard. If you had to go back and so say you still wanted to be an airline pilot, you wanted to be in the same spot you're in now. If you had the chance, let's say you are 18, you're out of high school, you have the chance to go to North Dakota or a uh, Embry-Riddle or like a bigger aviation school versus 61, would you choose one or the other? I would definitely choose the part 141 track. I mean, I I really loved my time at UND. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I think that the biggest benefits of those programs are, like I said, the established um, training track. The fact that they have um, pathway programs for professional pilots into some large airlines. There's some opportunities that you can find there that you just can't find on smaller Part 61 schools. And the other side for people who are in a spot where they need financial help, if you don't go to a Part 141 training program, the likelihood of you finding a loan available is really challenging. So when you go to a school where there's scholarships and established loan programs available, um, that can help a lot for getting the financing for your training versus a part 61 school where you might feel like you're a little bit on your own. Yeah, that's a good point, especially because flying is expensive, especially when you go the 141 route, it's going to be expensive. I mean, 61 too, but 141 in a university might be a little bit more expensive uh, if you get most of the schools in there. Uh, but yeah, loans are, they're definitely going to want to see an accredited, accredited university, someone that has the opportunity to have scholarships and a proven path and a proven track where they can show you that you'll have an opportunity to pay your loans back one day with a job. Right. Exactly. What, um, so you, you did say you would probably prefer 141. What was your, what I know you kind of mentioned that you had to teach yourself on your own in the beginning. What did you use for those skills? How did you teach yourself? Like, obviously, when you first learn how to fly, it's the most important time of your career, of your life, is what you're teaching yourself. How did you feel comfortable teaching you? What resources did you use? Did you watch YouTube videos? I know you said the jet book, but did you use other materials too? Yeah, so I guess the the ones I can remember off the top of my head, um, for when I was initially learning for my private, I did use the Jefferson Private Pilot textbook. I used Sporties online. Um, that was a private pilot uh, sort of ground school that I used in preparation for my knowledge exam. I used the Glime private pilot uh, written exam test like booklet as well, where you sort of had all the questions you could go through. And I just I just went through all of the material basically. Um, also with Bold Method, that's a company that I've been involved with for a long time, and we produce similar similar content. And that's some of the stuff that I later on actually used for my own training too, where. It was free content online that you could sort of use to supplement your flight training. Um, and that's, yeah, one of the things that I, I used too as well. So do you think when you started writing for Bold Method, do you think you were writing material that you would have wanted when you were in that position? 100%, yeah. So that's why Alex and Colin, um, they actually, they brought me on for that very reason. They brought me on when I was about, I think, maybe 16, 17 years old. 
actually just starting flight training because I was about to go through the full range of the training experience from private all the way through commercial multi at UND and into the airlines. So they knew that I was going to go through the training process in a more sort of updated way since they had gone through it in the early 2000s. So it gave me a really first person view of what the current training world was like and the things that I wanted to learn. And it gave me really, really good topics to sort of research, teach and write about. Absolutely. No, that's a smart that's a smart way to go about it because especially when you make it personal and something that you're passionate about and something that is personally affecting you and you know other people can use, it's definitely a beneficial read. And obviously it's done well, Bold Method. I think everyone listening to this knows what Bold Method is. So you guys have done a good job over there. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you uh, private pilot license. Uh, did you get that pretty much before you went to, no- I almost said Notre Dame. Did you get that before you went to North Dakota? I did. So I got that right right after I turned 17 in high school. So I had it for about, I guess, a year, year and a half before I ended up going off to UND. Um, and I thought it was a great way to go. I've seen people do both sort of like you were, you know, you can get your you can get your private through the college. If you have the opportunity in high school, I highly recommend it. It can be a good way to get experience outside of school and you can kind of show up and have a little bit of knowledge going into the process. The other side of that, of course, is you get a good idea for if it's something you really want to go to school for or not. Um, There are a lot of people who show up to college thinking that they want to become a professional pilot and they realize how much time, effort and money it takes. And then they decide that maybe they want to switch programs. So having a little bit of an idea of what it takes going into it, I, I don't think that's such a bad thing either. No, not at all. I, one of the things I wish that I could have done is gone back and done my flying before I went to college. Not necessarily all of it, but maybe get my private because my grandpa and my dad were both pilots. So I, I was in an aviation family. I was just focused on so many other things. And there's other things that I thought I'd be doing with my career. But when those didn't work out, I was like, all right, cool. I'll do flying now when I was 20 years old. But I could have done it when I was 17 and I could have been at an airline younger. You know, there's just so many things that go through your mind. And starting early is definitely good because you learn really quick if this is something you really want to do and if you're really going to be focused on. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's 100%. Yeah, learning learning early on and sort of having that that drive from even, you know, a younger uh, teenager and things like that, that's really good. And it gives you the, I guess, the extra responsibility to it kind of shapes the way you think about the world when you're suddenly confronted with flying an airplane <laughs> when you're 16, 17 years old. So, so why North Dakota? What was it about North Dakota? You, you come from Virginia. You're from Virginia, right? Yep. So yep. all the way to North Dakota, it's freezing cold. The winters are terrible. I'm from North Carolina. So like we needed to stay South. <laughs> Why did you go to North Dakota? What drew you there? Sure. So it was, uh, it was like four big reasons. So the first thing, I guess the, the triggering event that sort of got me to go up there, cause I, I never wanted to even visit the school, to be honest, um, was my two business partners at Bold Method, Alex and Colin. They both graduated from UND in the mid 2000s and they really, really pushed me to go up to just at least check it out. They were like, Hey, this is a great program. We loved it. Neither of us, um, neither of them were from North Dakota. So they, they said, you know, Hey, I know it sounds intimidating, but you really should go check out the program. So that's what drove me to sort of go up to school in the first place to make my first visit. And when I was there, I absolutely loved it. The students, the faculty, everybody was so incredibly accommodating. Um, the facilities were amazing. The flight training program was top notch. And then the other factors that I really liked about it were the fact that it was a normal college experience. It wasn't just aviation. Um, and there are some programs out there that are primarily just aviation. But for us at UND, around 1,500 of the 12 to 13,000 undergrads were aviation majors, which meant that you had a lot of friends and you knew a lot of people that weren't in the aviation program. I wanted that out of my college experience. And then having some other normal things like school sports, UND hockey is a big deal. 
I loved being able to have that uh, sort of normal college experience too. The other side was that it was really, uh, really affordable. Um, at UND, if you live in the state of North Dakota for just a year, they automatically grant you in-state tuition, which I think was 8000 a year. So you add flight, you add flight training on top of that, of course, but compared to some of the other programs out there, I mean, that's an amazing option. Um, just live there for a year and then your, your cost for school is like a third to a quarter of some of the other programs. And it's, and it's an awesome, reputable program too. So that was, those were some of the biggest reasons I'd say why, why it really drew me in. Uh, yeah, those are good reasons. I'm very interested. Did, when you went to go on your visit, did you go in the wintertime or did you go in the, the summer and fall? So I went in October, um, and when I left Virginia, I remember it was like in the seventies still in Virginia. And then when we got up there, it was actually below, below 32. So it was below freezing when we were up there, even like the first week of October. So that was definitely a shock. I mean, there was already snow on the ground and I was like, man, do I really want to be up here? <laughs> and, uh, but I ended up deciding that it was the, the right fit for me. So. Uh, yeah, no, it is the right fit. It's uh, it's very interesting to because when I went to Ohio State and it's a little bit different North Dakota, the winters there are definitely more intense, and I'm sure it's even grayer and the snow is a little bit bigger. But it's a shock. It's a culture shock. It's a it's a weather shock when you when you move far away from home and you go to a, a state in the Midwest or far north like you did, and it can be tough when you make that transition. So you want to make sure you have you feel comfortable there because there's going to be a time where you're going to question your choice. Did you find that you had a time where you're like, man, I, w- I wish I was still in Virginia or when you got there, you're like, no, this is awesome. I love it. No, honestly, I never, I never looked back at all, uh, at the decision at all. I mean, when I was there, I, I never once wished that I had gone somewhere else or wished that I was back in Virginia. I mean, I guess at the extreme when we have some of the coldest days in January at like negative 30, I mean, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> I did not want to be up there for that. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I had just the most amazing group of friends there. Um, and they really became my family super quickly. And I didn't want to be anywhere else. Even, even after I finished school, I stayed up there for a few extra months beyond what, um, what I originally was planning to just because most of my friends were still around. And that was sort of home for me at that point. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. I mean, once you can make that community, it can really help. You mentioned that you, you noticed a lot of differences between a 141 training and a 61 training. Was it hard for you to catch on to the 141 style or are you just so glad that you weren't teaching yourself how to fly anymore? You know, I, um, I, I guess it wasn't too challenging. Um, they had a private pilot transition course at UND. So if you had your private already, to sort of integrate you into their training uh, syllabus, the standard procedures they would use, there was about a seven lesson private pilot transition course that we went into. Some of the things that I thought were just ridiculous when I showed up that I sort of had to get used to was the fact that it was very airline style, the way that checklists were operated, things like um, the standard procedures for which lights on the airplane are, are turned on and when just didn't make sense to me at first. You know, it was kind of one of those things where flying part 61 and on my own, it was like, you know, you turn on the lights when you want to be seen during takeoff and landing, but they had very specific times for when each, you know, the taxi versus landing light would come on versus descent and landing and things like that which at the time I didn't really understand. But now that I'm at the airlines, um, I fully understand the reason why they were training people that way. So I guess that was one of the initial kind of shocks for me was that I went from having no standard procedures to a whole booklet of rules and policies that the school had. Um, And getting used to that was kind of tough at first. Yeah, especially since you did 61. And like you said, it's kind of like, well, I guess I should turn the landing light on now. (laughs) That's probably about the right time. Yeah, you could could do everything yourself. And then all of a sudden you're confronted with 
you know, standard uh, practice areas and the way that different aircraft are operated and stuff. It's uh, it's definitely a big, big jump. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Did you do uh, aviation management or aviation systems? If those are I the did, type uh, of- so yeah, so it was called um, aeronautical science, which I think is like aviation systems for you guys. It was uh, a aeronautical science degree. They call it the commercial aviation track at UND. I think that actually aviation management is the most valuable degree that they offer because it's a combo of business and aviation. I just chose not to do that because I'd had some other business experience already through Bold Method and a few other projects too that offered me a few of those resources already. So I just chose not to go down that track myself. But for other people, I really think that the aviation management degree is a great option. With uh, your the aeronautical science part, did you have, was it predicated on you getting all your ratings for you to graduate? It was. So the, the aeronautical science degree went all the way through CFII. Um, so it was, it was required to go all the way through I for that degree. Did you find it? So at Ohio State, those are the two options. You had aviation management or you had aviation systems, which is like what you did. But the weather was so unpredictable. I was always afraid that it was going to take me an extra year to graduate. Did, and the weather in North Dakota is even worse. So did you find that a challenge with the weather or did it work out pretty well? Uh, for me, it worked out pretty well. I had a few friends who had issues with it every now and then. But to be honest, at least when I went through, you know, the weather was good enough to, you know, fly your butt off when the weather was good. And then I always finished a month or two early during the semester with my flight courses. So I never had an issue finishing late with with any flight course, which was really fortunate. Um, but again, I did push my uh, CFIs to fly with me when the weather was good. I would do back to back flight lessons if I could when they were available. Um, and I, I did those things just to get ahead. Uh, and it, it worked out most of the time. So I would finish, you know, one to three months early during the semester sometimes. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's definitely a good use of your time. And I like how you said you had to uh, convince or talk your uh, flight instructors into flying with you. Uh, sometimes I found it at the 141 school I was at that some of them were on salary and some of them didn't want to fly as much. I didn't know if that was similar at, at uh, North Dakota or if it was they were all trying to get their hours and go to the airlines pretty quick and you didn't have that problem. I think most of my instructors uh, all wanted to fly when I was at UND for the most part. I had a few that were on salary, but that was like on the later courses like CFI. But even then they wanted to fly with me. It was it was more their own scheduling difficulty in terms of having so many students. And you could only, you know, push somebody so much. You don't want to be don't want to be rude or anything like that. But um yeah, I think most of them definitely wanted to wanted to fly. So when you were uh, so talk a little bit about the scheduling difficulties at a bigger school versus sixty one, where maybe you're the only one that's flying the plane and you have all day to do it. But when you're at a bigger, busier one forty one school, it's very kind of regimented. Like, all right, you have this plane for an hour. If the weather's bad, you forfeit your time and you can't fly, but someone else can. So talk a little bit about maybe difficulties with that, or just how you had to adjust from a sixty one schedule to a one forty one for uh, getting a plane. So there's a few pros and cons for part 61. If you're at a smaller flight school, you might just have a, an air, a single aircraft or a few airplanes. And when one airplane goes down for maintenance, you suddenly find yourself unable to do training, which I definitely found a few times when my primary airplane that I was doing training in would go down for maintenance or something like that for a week. And suddenly there's nothing to train in. You don't find that issue at part 141 schools. But like you said, you do have the volume of students. So they had a very um, systematic scheduling system that showed all the aircraft, the blocks that were available. And there were some rules on how many you could schedule and how many students a CFI could schedule in a day and and such such stuff like that. But for the most part, um, I didn't have a huge issue. Only on a few occasions would we experience things on really good weather days where you would get, we called it maintenance canceled. 
when you'd be out at the airport waiting for, you'd be at the dispatch desk waiting for an aircraft book for one of, you know, 50 Cessnas or 50 pipe, you know, Pipers. And literally so many people are flying that if there were, you know, three or four airplanes that suddenly had a maintenance issue and went down, those airplanes were no longer available for that flight block. So if you're one of the unlucky ones to not get an airplane because they had a, a reduction in capacity beyond what was anticipated, we called that being maintenance canceled. And um, that happened to me maybe four or five times total during college. It wasn't crazy, but it definitely happened a few times. Um, overall, though, I mean, the fact that there were a lot of airplanes, I think, you know, worked to my benefit for the most part. One thing in North Dakota that was actually really interesting was most of the time in college, right? You don't want to be the person that's having to get up at four or five in the morning for a flight lesson. That's like definitely a faux pas. Like that's not the way that college kids want to operate. But at UND, a lot of the time that was the opposite because in North Dakota, if you were on the first flight block, you could oftentimes pre-flight your airplane inside the heated hangar before they pulled it out. So you'd find a lot of kids that would try to sign up for like the 5.30, 6 a.m. flight launch because then you could do your, your you know, pre-brief and uh, pre-flight check inside the hangar and then the airplane would be pulled out and basically warm even if it was negative 20 outside. So that was a kind of an interesting difference there. That's smart. Oh my gosh, those kids are, I'm, did you do that? Did you try to sign up for that? I had it, a, I had it a few times, to be honest. I didn't really care about the cold that much. When I got that flight block, it wasn't by choice. I just had a, um, I just, based on the registration process, which I can't really, rem really remember at this time. Um, I just don't think they had any ones later in the day available with my CFI. So I ended up having an early one. I liked it, but I also didn't like getting up early. So yeah, it's, uh, they both sound terrible, either getting up earlier or being in a negative 20 degree weather, which I'm guessing there was also a wind chill on top of that. So it, uh, they both sound equally as bad. Yeah. Kind of just have to pick which one sucks the, the least. Right. Right. Did I hear you right? When you said you, there was over 50 Cessnas. Yeah, so UND, that's another that's another big deal. Um, up in Grand Forks, they had up to 90 airplanes at a time just in Grand Forks for UND alone. Um, we had something like, uh, when I went through school, it was mainly Cessnas that were transitioning to Piper Archers, but I think they had something like 60, 65 Cessnas, and then they had maybe 15 Seminoles, um, like seven or eight helicopters, and then they had some King Airs for the contract students from Asia and the Middle East. Um, that were, they were doing kind of upper level training in King airs. And then we also had maybe three decathlons and some air, you know, aerobatic training aircraft. So the total aircraft count in Grand Forks alone was something like, you know, between 75 and 95 aircraft. And that's actually one of the, the, the cool things about operating up there. The Grand Forks control tower, um, is actually oftentimes in the top 20 busiest control towers in the country on any given day on a good weather day, beating places like Orlando and Seattle, um, we would have more operations because of the volume of training students. So that was also kind of a funny thing you wouldn't expect from the middle of North Dakota. No, not at all. <laughs> That's definitely something you would not expect. I'm glad you guys have a tower. I, I went to a school, I think it was south of Minneapolis. It starts with a K. I can't remember what it was, but they don't have a tower. They're a pretty big flight school. And there was like seven 172s in the pattern and trying to get a jet in on an ILS approach or or being vectored by the center when mixing in with that traffic was just a, a hot, hot mess. So I'm glad you guys have a tower because it's definitely needed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they, they have airlines and all that going into Grand Forks too. So 
What was uh, what was your so going back to fifteen? What was your goal as a fifteen year old? Did you have a set goal where you're like, all right, I want to fly for a regional as soon as I can. I want to go to a major airline as soon as I can. Or you kind of on the, the have the mindset of I just kind of want to see where aviation can take me and see the cool jobs that I can get and just go with the flow. I wanted to see where aviation could uh, could take me. I didn't have a set path. I knew that I wanted to fly for a living and be a professional pilot, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. To be honest, actually, the idea of becoming an airline pilot was not something that I was interested in until I was maybe a sophomore at UND when the the aviation industry and airlines were really picking up and I saw the opportunities that were offered there. Um, I wanted to do something that was more adventurous, bush flying, um, charter, some cargo, you know, somewhere somewhere unique. I watched shows when I was younger that showed um, some of those really unique jobs all around the world that pilots could have. And uh, I wanted to find a way of, of having that adventure, I guess, at the beginning of my career. Fortunately, I, I did have a little taste of it when I flew for Mokalele Airline, uh, Airlines out in Hawaii. So I got to have a little bit of fun and sort of adventurous flying doing that. Um, but I didn't know that I really wanted to become an airline pilot until I was actually in the program at UND. Okay. And so what made that switch was kind of the, just the economic opportunities and the career progression definitely changed. Is that what kind of caught your eye? That was the biggest thing for me. I mean, you know, you realize you go from, I think the progression is sort of a natural one when you're in high school and looking at the fun adventures careers, that's what your primary focus is. But then when you get to college and suddenly you realize that this is a career where you're going to be, you know, kind of starting your, uh, your life's journey based on, not just things like adventures, but also finances and career opportunities and paying back loans and things like that. That's where the airlines really came um, came into play. And between the time when I started UND in 2015 and graduated in 2018, um, things really, really accelerated in the aviation industry. Airlines were doubling, if not tripling, pay rates for new hire first officers, things like that. You know, it was such a boom um, that... It was, it was awesome to see. And I knew that I wanted to, to get on the wave while it lasted. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. It's something that you wanted to do and needed to do. And, and you did, uh, you talked about, you went and you flew out in Hawaii. How did that opportunity come up? Did they come to you at a career fair or did you just Google awesome flying jobs? And then that popped up and you're like, cool, I'm going, how do I do this? But how, how did, I guess just, how did that even pop up? How was that even a choice? Yeah. So I grew up, um, two of the people that are some of my best friends in the world and sort of pilot mentors, Rod and Haley Kellogg, um, down in Gulf Shores, Alabama. That was a place where I used to go on family reunions when I was a kid. And when I was 15 years old, I went down there to have a normal family reunion and I wanted to fly over the beach for the first time. And so I found a local and flight instructor whose name was Rod, went up and flew with him and my family. And we became friends for years. I started going down and he was a, a pilot on a Part 91 King Air, and he started taking me on trips um, where I would fly right seat to Nicaragua and Canada, and we ferried a, a seaplane from Alabama up to British Columbia. We did all these really amazing things um, that he sort of mentored me through, and he became this um, this big uh, sort of mentorship uh, opportunity for me. And then Haley was the same way, too. She was this amazing uh, pilot, just two years older than me, who had thousands of hours and was a CFI by the time she was 18. And uh, both of them sort of took me under their wing and they both started flying for Mokalele in Hawaii. So they both went in as street captains and that's how I found out about the job. And I saw what they were doing out there and of course stayed in touch. And to get the job opportunity, I actually on a spring break from UND decided to buy a ticket out to Hawaii to go visit them and then also interact with the management at the company itself. So I went out there and sort of took the, I guess, took the head on buying a ticket to get there. 
to go ahead and talk to them face to face and say, here, you know, here's what I'm doing at UND. Here's also some of the video content I produce on the side. I would love to work with you guys. And that's how the job came about. Um, and then I got started just a few months later. So it was, uh, it was, I guess, lucky, but it was also, you know, sort of right time, right place plus opportunity, um, and preparation and all that. So having Rod and Haley there was, uh, was definitely sort of the, the triggering point for that. Cool. I mean, a couple of things from that story. Uh, one, I was just in Gulf Shores. I, I landed there two, three days ago. So that was the first time I've ever been there. Oh, Jack, yeah, Jack we just Edwards, went there. Yeah, yeah so nice. that's pretty cool. That's a busy little airport, man. That could be... Uh, it is a and, very busy airport. Yeah, that could be a little <laughs> dangerous airport to go in and out of. People are taking off all different runways and it was just it was interesting. Yep. Um, that's where I'm flying in three weeks when I when I go down to Florida and Alabama. I'm going to be... That's where Rod and Haley are today is Jack Edwards. That's so. awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a great airport. Uh, it was a yeah, it's a great airport. It's cool to fly. So it's funny you bring that up. I've never been there before. And then here we are talking about it right now. Right. Second, you flew King Airs to Nicaragua. That's unbelievable. Or not even maybe King Airs, but just you flew to Nicaragua. Having that kind of opportunity and learn. That's a great way to learn about how international ops work. Um, you had to fly over water. So you just learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had a great, great exposure to sort of diverse jobs and diverse flying through Rod and Haley down in Alabama. Um, he was a pilot for a company called The Shrimp Basket that operated about 30 restaurants around the Gulf Coast. And the owner had a vacation um, property essentially in Nicaragua that he would go to every maybe six months or so. And so when I was in high school, senior year, I took maybe an extra few days of school off on a long weekend, went down to Alabama and then sat right seat and sort of was the co-pilot listed on the trip to to Nicaragua. We flew through Belize and refueled, went down there for a few days and it was, it was awesome. We had this road trip all around the country and I was listed on the flight paperwork. So when we had to leave um, Nicaragua, we were going into their civil aviation office to get the permits to, to fly out. And I got to experience all of that firsthand. So that was incredible. And being able to do those things, uh, even, you know, before I was 20, was, was awesome. Yeah, no, I didn't realize before you're 22. That's really cool. And then on top of that too, you were able to have connections that went to go out and fly in, in Hawaii and set up that connection for you. But you also, you had to take action. Like you, you yes, had right place, right time, but you also bought a ticket to go to Hawaii, which is not cheap to go kind of show them how serious you were about wanting to fly there. I'm sure that showed a lot of uh, uh, dedication to that. And that probably helped you get the job by buying a ticket. I'm sure a lot of people to supply online, but they don't actually go to there and buy a ticket and be like, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to fly for you. Yeah, no, it was, it's definitely something that you have to do when, uh, you know, when it's a job or opportunity that you really want, you sometimes have to take a risk on that. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you said, just, just having the connections in place where you never really know where uh, you'll meet a friend who will go to X job and then help you get in the door. I always tell people when you're a young student pilot, um, even before you've started your professional career network, 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 like get to know people because aviation, a lot of the times is about who, you know, not what, you know. Um, and in this case with Rod and Haley, I, I had no idea when I was a student pilot at 16 years old, flying around Gulf shores with Rod as an instructor, that that would lead to all of these amazing opportunities one day. And, you know, it's hard not to take that for granted in the way, in a sense, but when you're, uh, when you're getting to know people, try to keep in touch with people, um, don't use them. But at the same time, you have to realize that everybody supports each other to a certain extent. So make friends and, and keep those connections going. Yeah, for sure. I, I like to always say that you need to be your own CEO. Like you are the CEO of your career. 
and you need to make sure you're making those connections. You make sure you're fostering relationships. And I like that you said, don't use people. You have to bring value for them too. You have to find a way that you can bring value, whether you're giving back to them later, or maybe you're flying right seat because they need someone to go fly, or you're mopping the floor, you're helping with oil changes. Just try to bring value. And don't cross the line between value and annoying where you're just trying to leech off of them. But definitely put yourself in the best position possible. And you never know who you're going to meet that could be the one that, that could help your career. So always try to be a good person and figure out just how you can portray yourself in the best light possible. Because you might find yourself sitting right seat in a King Air going to Nicaragua when you don't hear a private pilot or even a student pilot. Yeah. And the other, you know, the other thing I would say is when you get an opportunity, even if it means missing out on something else, you know, for instance, I had to take uh, time away from school and I think I'd probably miss some assignments and got some bad grades um, from that. But, you know, you, you sometimes have to make that choice and the opportunities might be spur of the moment. It's funny we're talking about Rod. He actually called me right before I got on with this podcast. He's a, he's now a Honda jet um, instructor and a Honda jet ferry pilot. And he's actually, he called me, he's like, Hey man, are you, cause I'm coming to Virginia later today. He's like, are you in Virginia right now? And I was like, no, I'm coming later tonight. He's like, dang, I'm in, I'm in Roanoke right now. I'm out to about to ferry this Honda jet across the country. And I was wondering if you wanted to come jump on and fly with me. And of course I'm getting to Virginia later today, so I'm not going to make it, <laughs> but you know, it's just one of those things where you never know what's going to pop up You never um, know, and you just have to just jump up and go for it sometimes. You got to, you just got to say yes. You just got to be like, all right, cool. Honda jet. Let's go. Let's do it. That'd be right, fun. Right, See, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. He's a hot, sounds like a good person to know. So you definitely, yeah, set he's, he's up been all over the place. He, he, he's really covered his bases. He hasn't done the airline thing. He always made fun of me for going down that track, but, uh, but yeah, he's done a lot. Uh, you bring up a, a, an interesting point. So you go out to Hawaii and you say, Hey, I want to fly for you. I also make videos. Now, social media and aviation, they are great. It is a great way to show off aviation. It's a great way to, to show yourself off and, and it can create a lot of views, a lot of uh, attention. But airlines and companies, FAA, they don't necessarily always want that kind of attention. They're kind of fearful of how they may be portrayed or what might be viewed. What was the conversation like when you mentioned, I make videos, I want to do this? Were they like, yeah, cool, come on in? Or were they like, oh, why don't we slow down a little bit and we can see how this goes? So it's actually kind of interesting. It's actually at this particular company, and I'll talk about it um, in terms of where I work now a little bit differently, but at Mokwele, it was actually the opposite of what you would expect. So I, I came to them and I basically pitched them on the idea. I said, hey, here's what I want to produce. I think this is an amazing company. I think that this is an awesome opportunity for building time and we should find a way to show that off, to show that young pilots have these cool opportunities out there for them. And they were like, oh yeah, go for it. This is a great idea. Um, there's nothing in our op specs that says we can't do this. Um, I created a, a briefing checklist um, to kind of work through things. But I, I asked the company and I asked sort of the management, I was like, hey, what do we need to do to get this approved? And they actually surprisingly came back and said, hey, we don't actually need to um, need to work with even the FA on this. There's no restrictions on this at all based on what we see in our op specs. And I said, no, we need to actually let's re reach out to the POI in Honolulu, the FISDO there, and get involved with them and uh, say, here's what we want to do. Because I'm telling you guys, when this starts to get a lot of views, it will get attention and people will raise their eyebrows at it. So I actually kind of told the company we needed to get approval and we needed to reach out to the POI. So we went ahead and talked to the inspector for the airline, said, here's what we want to produce. How can we make this happen safely? And we set up a briefing checklist that I worked with each crew on filming I went in and took pictures of the different mounting locations we would have for cameras in the cockpit. And uh, that way they were, we had our back covered so that if um, anybody ever sort of 
question that we had already worked with the FA on approving it, um, crossing every T and dotting every I in a way that even the airline said wasn't necessary. And surprisingly, as you might expect, um, it actually paid off. So about a year later, when things were getting millions and millions of views, sure enough, somebody decided to report the videos to the FAA headquarters in D.C. and literally filed a complaint against what we were doing. Then the FAA headquarters reaches out to the Honolulu FISDO and says, hey, guys, what's going on here? And the FISDO is like, oh, yeah, you know, here's what we've done to approve this. We've been coordinating this. Here's how um, the airline's been operating. And here's the, you know, the approval that we gave them. So it just goes to show aviation sometimes doesn't work with media very well. But if you can find a way of really dedicating yourself to following the rules and working with people to get things approved, you can make it happen. Yeah, I love that you said that because it doesn't, you're going to, if you get the attention and a lot of times if you're, if you're going to continue to do it, there's a chance that one of your videos will pick up and get millions and millions of views or a couple hundred thousand and someone, there'll be one person that watches it and it just pisses them off. Maybe they're jealous. Maybe they wish that they were doing it or they just didn't like one thing that you did. They just have, they just want to spite you and they report it. You did it the hard way and possibly the probably the right way of covering your butt. You went through and you made sure the FISDO was good with it and you laid out a set plan of why it was safe and how it could happen. Uh, I've, I mean, I know Steve-O has gotten or had people report him. I know that there's been other YouTubers, uh, just plain silly. He just had a couple of videos where he, I don't know if you knew who that is, but he got reported for something he posted on Instagram or on Facebook. So it's going to happen. If you put yourself out there in that content, you're going to get some people that don't like it and report you. And there is best if you can have something to back it up rather than say, oh, but the company just said it was fine. But if you have a plan, if you have a FISDO, if you have a POI that's like, no, this is, okay, this is what we're doing, this, 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 and this, here's your 10-step plan, we approve it, then it's going to make your life a lot easier. Yeah, and the other thing that I would say, even beyond, you know, even if you're not operating under a a company guideline um, with some of the, the times that people have gotten in trouble, they often are operating within a gray area. So there might not be a specific regulation or policy that the FAA has that says that you can't do something, right? But in the end, the FAA's mindset is about creating the most safe environment possible. So anything that you do that compromises safety or can be viewed by the public as compromising safety is something that will raise eyebrows. So regardless of whether or not there's an actual regulation, I I hate to say this, but the FAA really is judge, jury, executioner. Um, You do have to um, really work with them to find a way that's approved, that you have your back covered that you're working in partnership, even if that means that you're restricting yourself to things that you would like to do. There have been plenty of things that I would have liked to film, especially at my current job, um, that I can't because of the restrictions that have been placed on me. But at the same time, you you just have to do the very best with what you have. Um, And another thing I'd like to say, you'll see people, I'm sure everybody listening to this, you have friends who are pilots, some are professional pilots who will post things online, and you'll wonder, why can't I do this myself? But the second that you do it and the difference between you and your friend's post is that if your post does get eyes on it, if it does go viral, people do share it and somebody decides to report it. um, People will come after the thing that has the viewership. They're not going to go target thousands of pilots who have posted cockpit pictures um, in flight. They're going to they're going to go after the one that (laughs) the one that actually has viewership. So just keep that in mind. And you once something's online, you you no longer have control of it. So you just have to keep that in mind. Yeah, you can delete it, but people save it. People take pictures of it. They send it to their friends. Uh, I know people that post videos and they have a community. The people that watch it, they save those videos just in case they don't like anything. So there's there's no way that you can protect yourself once you post it. 
Yep, that's 100% true. What, uh, so what kind of flying were you doing down in Hawaii? Uh, it was caravans, right? Yep, it was caravans. We were scheduled part 135. So we did primarily a scheduled passenger service between um, most of the Hawaiian islands, excluding Kauai. Um, and we would fly. It was it was like any other airline. You could book a ticket on Expedia or a partnership through a code share like Alaska Airlines. And we flew primarily um, routes between the islands. We did 50% tourists, 50% local for the most part. Um, and there's no way of getting around Hawaii besides air. There are no ferries between the islands. So that's what we were doing. That's cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, a caravan's a, a good, fun plane to, to putz around the islands in, having a nice little turbo prop and uh, enjoying the views. It was amazing. I absolutely loved the experience. There's times when I wish I could go back. You know, the career progression and, and pay definitely wasn't there, but it was a fun job. Yeah, I bet. Did you um, did you have any kind of interesting stories? Like, uh, what I guess, what is like your your most like sought after story that you keep going back to and always telling people about your time there? You know, I think that the biggest story um, that I would have is, uh, you know, we would have a morning shift and a PM shift. And this didn't happen every day, but all of our flights were scheduled as morning or PM. So you'd either work from about six, seven in the morning until 1 PM or about 1 PM until 8 PM. And that was sort of your shift for the day. You didn't have overnights or anything like that. Um, and the, the company was small. It was based in Kona on the Big Island. That was one of our, our bigger pilot bases. And you really got to know everybody. So, you know, you'd send out a group text at the end of the AM shift and everybody who was working would go off to the beach together. So you'd find, uh, you know, eight to 10 Mokalele pilots on their afternoon, like all driving out from the airport, just going straight to the beach, changing in the car and like going out together to the <laughs> to relax for the rest of the day. And just that lifestyle and having that interaction and friendship with the crews out there that are lifelong friends of mine now um, is something that I really, really miss. And that was absolutely my favorite part of living and working there. Is that the same? I don't know if it's the same one, but wasn't there a caravan that went down in the water? Was that the same airline or was that a different one? It was not. That was another carrier. Um, and that was off of the island of Molokai, but that was a, a different part 135 carrier. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't know. I figured there'd be a lot because I feel like there's there's probably a good demand for a 135 caravan kind of transporting people from back and forth between the islands. Because like you said, there's no ferries out there. Right. Yeah, no, there, there definitely was a demand. You know, at, at one time we were one of three large airlines that was operating um, Hawaiian Airlines Island Air and then Mokalele were the three primary uh, sort of carriers. Island Air went out of business when I was there after about 25 years, which was sad. They had maybe 15 or 20 Dash 8s and ATRs. Um, but then now now today, it's pretty much just uh, Hawaiian with the subsidiary um, Ohana, which flies ATRs and then Mokalele. So we fly a lot of the routes that Hawaiian doesn't. We do fly some of the same ones, but our, our sort of, I guess, at Mokalele, it was a lot of the shorter routes that Hawaiian doesn't operate on the Boeing. So things like Kahului Maui to Hana or Kona to Kahului Maui, things like that, um, that you just didn't do on the 717. What's a typical progression for a pilot there? Do they uh, stay there until maybe Hawaiian can pick them up or are they from Hawaii? Are they, they from the, uh, the 48 contiguous states or kind of what's like, I guess the, the typical pilot and what's a typical progression for someone that goes there? I'd say roughly only maybe 20% of the actual pilot group was from Hawaii. Um, just because it's a smaller group of people and there's not a ton of flight training on the islands, GA is pretty small out there. Um, and then you found two groups of pilots at the airline and people who were building flight time 
and people who were um, in retirement. So you'd have, or, or people who made it a career. There were maybe a, a dozen people at the airline who they were sort of career people for the airline. Um, but yeah, you'd have younger people, 25 and younger, 30 and younger, who were building flight time to go on to a, a regional airline in the States. Um, and then you coupled that with retired airline pilots a lot of the time. So I had captains at Mokalele who were X-747 pilots at Delta, FedEx. Um, one of my One of my captains was the lead test pilot for Boeing on the 787. So you'd couple this young, inexperienced pilot with a retired pilot who has years and decades of experience and learning from them was one of the coolest parts about that job. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved that. That was sort of the pilot group though. Yeah. That's cool though. That's uh that's a lot of experience you can get from and, and hearing stories from that. And I like how there's career pilots too. I'm sure people just get addicted to the Hawaii life and they, they can make enough money to maybe live out there and live the life they want. And they're like, why go anywhere else? And that just also goes to further the point where you don't have to be a major airline pilot to have a great career. You can just go fly caravans in Hawaii and, and live, on, live on the island and have a pretty great life. Yep. And to answer your question, because I forgot to answer it earlier, um, for a, a carrier like Hawaiian, it was almost unheard of to go straight from a, a caravan at Mokalele to Hawaiian. I know it happened a handful of times, but for the most part, Hawaiian, at least from my knowledge, expects people to have some mainland um, part 121 time. So they like people to go fly for a regional carrier or another airline back on the lower 48 so that you get experience operating in icing conditions and you know different weather. Because out in Hawaii, you know, there were seven airports that we were flying to over and over. You don't get a lot of diversity and um, and operations really. So they wanted people to go have that turbine experience, um, stateside in a way to, uh, to get a flying background that was a little bit more diverse than what was offered out in Hawaii. Yeah. That's good to know because I feel like I've always had in the back of my mind, I'm sure some people do as well. It's like, I want to go fly in Hawaii. Like, how do I make that happen? And you can do that flying caravans, but even further 121 flying for Hawaiian airlines, kind of like, well, That'd be sweet living on Honolulu and just fly airplanes all the time in Hawaii or back and forth to LA, San Fran or wherever they go. I think that'd be a really cool life. Yeah, it was an unbelievable lifestyle. And I, I wish that I had taken it more for granted when I was there. I really miss it now, um, especially with some of the, the smaller cities that I fly to. You know, it, it's funny because after about a month or two of living there, I got kind of tired of hiking and going to the beach and doing all the fun stuff. And then I would have to remind myself of that I was kind of honestly living in paradise and I wish that I, I had that now. So <laughs> Absolutely. No, and now you live in Chicago and then the sun hasn't been out. The sun's out today, but now the sun hasn't been out for like three months. <laughs> I know. And it's like 30 degrees in May. It's crazy. Yeah, it's but uh, I, I do love Chicago, though. I've absolutely loved it here. So yeah, it's a good place for sure. I've lived here for the last two years and, and really enjoyed it as well. Um, I want to. So you, you were enjoying where you were. When and why did you decide to leave? that job and why did you choose the current job you have now? Was it just the best career path? Were they the best of working with you wanting to do videos? Kind of what brought you where you are now and why did you leave in the first place? It's sort of the combination of all of the above. Um, you know, I always knew that Mokalele wasn't a, wasn't a career company for me. That was somewhere I was mainly going to build experience to go on to a, a larger airline. Um, and then I had, you know, for the current airline that I fly for, Envoy, which is under the American Airlines brand out of um, Chicago, I had a few friends who already were flying there. So I felt a real connection to the airline. I had sort of almost my own little family unit there, which I really like when I go into companies, having connections and resources beyond sort of just going in um, in the blind. So I interviewed there when I was at UNB. And then after about eight months, I was offered a class date. In between that time frame, after I actually applied and accepted the job offer, I started working with them on the video concept. I said, hey, 
here's what I'm doing out in Hawaii. Here's what I did to get approval. I already have this portfolio of experience in working with the FA to make all of this happen. I think we have a really cool opportunity to show a behind the scenes view of a 121 carrier that just hasn't been done before. So that's what I started working with them on. And fortunately, they were really, really accommodating. It did take about six months of going back and forth between airline management, American Airlines, and the FAA and our, our legal teams to get everything sort of set up in a way that approved me to do um, what I'm doing today. Um, but it was very fortunate that they wanted to work with me on that because we're able to, to film and show things that haven't been seen before um, in airline ops in the U.S. before. So very, very fortunate and lucky. And the other you know, side of it was obviously that with Envoy, I do have a progression one day to American Airlines. I can still apply to other carriers with the experience that I'm building. But knowing that I have a career track um, that's more or less set is something that I really value. Having that sort of insurance plan um, that I know that I have career progression. Yeah, uh, for sure. When you were, that is definitely a good thing, knowing that you in the in the future when coronavirus is done, hopefully, and you have that flow can come back and or you can, like you said, you can apply somewhere else and you can leave there. But you have that kind of to fall back on. You have the flow. Um, what was the pushback? Because obviously, like you had to go through American, you had to go through the legal team, the safety department. You had to go through so many departments to say yes to your idea. What was the main, if there was, there might not have been, but what was maybe the main catch up that they're having? The one thing they just kept coming back to to say, maybe, maybe not yet or no. Was there anything in particular that they didn't like or that they, you had to convince them on? To be honest, there wasn't anything specifically um, that that they didn't like. It was mainly just a general liability, right? So anytime you allow somebody to represent the company or show airline operations in a way that gets millions of views, it does raise a lot of eyebrows and it opens yourself up to liability. So finding a way of doing it that's in a safe, approved, sort of reviewed way is really important. Um, and we were able to do that. You know, The restrictions, at least that I currently have, are that for filming cockpit operations, we have to be on part 91 flights, filming with a handheld camera from the jump seat. So I have to have a jump seater that's coordinated on an empty leg, part 91 flight, filming with a handheld camera. I can't even mount something to the window, which is kind of strange, but it's just the rule that we were given. And that's sort of um, what I work with. Um, honestly, though, I think that sort of the cockpit operations and making sure we could get approval, even under part 91, um, to film was definitely challenging. And like I said earlier, there are no regulations that say that a jump seater or somebody filming under Part 91, even if it's a Part 91 airline flight, cannot do that, right? But we were still given restrictions. So it's an interesting kind of catch-all to notice that even though there's nothing published, there's no policy, there's no regulation that says we can't do this, there's still sort of a mentality that we need to have a system for how this is approved. And that's just the way that the FAA operates. And that, you know, working with them is the way to do it correctly. How hard is it to set up that flight? How hard is it to get a jump seater that you want and trust to film what you're doing? Uh, do you have to get approval for each flight before you fl before you go fly by by Envoy and American? Or is it kind of you have the ability to do it whenever you want, just as long as you do it under all these rules? It um It is pre-coordinated almost 99% of the time. Having a Part 91 flight mixed into your schedule is pretty rare for maintenance ferries and things like that. So coordinating a jump seater to film would be almost impossible the way that we've done it, and I've only filmed maybe five or six total um, flights, and I just mix the footage into different videos to make it sort of, you know, just editing trickery to make it seem like that's the storyline. And that's the way that, <laughs> that I have to do it to make it work. Um, but we have them pre-scheduled. So if the airline is operating something like a charter flight, where there's a Part 91 flight to reposition the airplane on either end of the charter, 
I might coordinate with them to have me assigned to that so that weeks in advance we can get somebody in the jump seat who's ready and sort of briefed on how we're going to do the filming. Or if there's a maintenance flight where we're delivering an aircraft to somebody else or we're doing a maintenance test flight out of one of our maintenance bases, that might be another time that we do Part 91 filming. Gotcha. Has it? Uh, do they choose who does the jump seat or do you get to choose? Um, it's kind of both. I mean, we just kind of, it's, it's nothing like too particular. I've had friends who have um, helped film before who um, I'll kind of call up and see if they're free. Sometimes it's people who are in management. Sometimes it's other pilots. It's, I've even had mechanics who've been sitting there, non-pilots at all, um, kind of help out. So it really, it doesn't really matter. There hasn't been any, any specific process. We've, we do have a list of people though, that we've used before who actually know how to do the filming. Um, so that's helpful instead of trying to teach somebody who, who doesn't have the skill set for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Cause it could be kind of tough. Like someone already is starting to just films the whole flight in vertical and you're like, crap, I can't use this. Why don't you flip your phone? What are you doing? Right. So right. It, it, I mean, it can bring it up. Like someone doesn't know the angle. So just, there's a lot of variables in, in what you're doing, what you're going on. It's interesting that you've only had five flights. I mean, like you said, the schedule is tough. I'm sure you you would love to f- be able to record every single flight, but it's just where you are right now and the, where where the company stands. Maybe in the future that could change, but it's uh, it's interesting to hear that they are changing. And like you said, you are the first one to do this. So you're the first one to kind of have this access to, to legally do it, I guess I should say. I'm sure some people have filmed and posted, but haven't had the actual backing of the airline or FAA or parent company. What has been uh, the reaction that you've got from that, that you're able to post this, that you're able to do this? Has the, the aviation community been been cool with it? Have they loved it? Have they been against it? Have they been jealous? Like kind of what kind of reaction are you getting from all of it? To be honest, I think, you know, 95% of the, the commentary is really positive. I mean, for people who are aspiring professional pilots, people who are in flight schools, or even sometimes people who fly for other airlines, um, they understand sort of the, the basis behind what I'm doing. The whole concept, I guess, is we... All of us who have gone through flight school, you spend upwards of $100,000 to become a professional pilot. And then you show up and you don't know anything about your job. You don't know what to expect. So finding a way of making that process a little bit easier is the whole goal. Um, but I think the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. The only time I guess I would say that there's been a negative reaction is that, like most companies, there are social media and filming policies. So I do have an exception to be able to do some of this that other people might not have. Um, you know, and when that happens, that's just a natural reaction. I totally understand the way people would feel about that, but I also have gone the extra step to get approval to say, here's what we're going to do. And here's the the process for it. So, you know, that's, that's the only real negative reaction I guess I would have had coming out of it. Yeah. What is, um, what has been the people you've been flying with? Have they been all on board with it? Or are they kind of like, oh, you're, you're actually going to post this? Or like, are they nervous? Or oh, they okay. Really yeah. So that's that's interesting. So that's the other half. Like all of it is staged, right? So when I fly the, um, you know, when I've had the five flights where we've done filming, the captain is well aware that that's what's going on. It's somebody who's completely willing and able to help. They're totally on board with doing it. I very, very rarely film actually at work. Um, most of it is staged outside of outside of work. I'll go off to the airport on an off day or if I'm on a long set or a layover and there's an airplane sitting on the ground for a few hours, I'll use that as a set to film um, when I'm not actually working during the day because things are frankly too busy to be filming during the day most of the time. Um, there have been a few videos where I've worked with crew members, but we've always gotten permission and approval in advance to make sure they're okay with it. But yeah, that's, that's one, um, I guess, reality that I think when people work with me that they realize after a little bit is that I'm not, I'm not sitting there next to them with, <laughs> with a camera strapped to me and I'm not going to, to, you know, film them or anything like that. 
when I'm working as a pilot, it's just working as a pilot. I don't film when I'm working on a normal trip with the airline. It's all very, very staged and pre-coordinated so that I'm not sort of conflicting the two jobs. It's interesting. Part of me before would think like the, the, the captain's like, all right, it's uh, I'm going to do a little brief real quick. Like, hang on one second. This is the, per- the light's perfect. I have to do this real quick. <laughs> uh, right, so being right. a regional pilot. Yeah, that's what we try to avoid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good thing. That's definitely smart. That'll, that'll definitely help you out. Um, what's kind of... Uh, could you see yourself, obviously, where you are, the goal is regional and uh, flow to American, go to another major airline. I mean, just forget about coronavirus and what it's doing to our career right now. But like, would there be any other opportunities that you want to fly? Are you set right now and going major airlines? Or do you think like maybe you kind of are still in the mindset of you want the coolest and best job that you can get? I leave the door open to opportunities, to be honest. Um, you know, I don't have a, a mindset set on going to a major airline or going to corporate or something like that. I just really like to keep the door open because I'm somebody who likes to experience a lot of different things. And if the right opportunity came around to leave sort of the established track on going down the the airline track, then I probably would. But I also would absolutely love to fly for a major carrier one day and have some of the experience flying larger aircraft. Absolutely. I think and everyone would. Um, So, all right, let's say... Delta or insert your dream airline. They come up to you, they hire you. They're like, all right, Swain, I just want to let you know, if you take this offer, you cannot film at all. You have to give up your social media life. Would you still go after that? Or is what you're building on social media so important to you that you would be able to maybe stay at the regional or maybe fly at the the major airline and just do some general aviation videos? If it was a dream job, I would take the job and stop filming, at least in that capacity. But my way of countering that in a way would be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not going to film anything in terms of the company or the operations, if that's something that a company really doesn't want. But I can still use the following that I've built outside of that to have um, similar learning topics, to show off other careers in aviation, to work with other partners, to show off the opportunities that aviation provides. It doesn't have to be filmed and staged at the company or airline that I'm working at for it to come off um, as valuable for people who are watching. So that's sort of the way that I would treat it. Um, I wouldn't forgo the potential of, of getting a dream job one day just for the, the purpose of filming. Because in the end, I'm a pilot and that's my primary job um, and that's my primary passion. Filming is equal, is close to equal, but it's still something that I see as sort of a secondary um, career for me. Yeah, that, that's good. I, I like that. That's a good answer for sure. Um, so I'm sure you get a lot of messages like, dude, Swain, like you have the best life. I want to have your life. Like you, you have thousands and millions of people watching hundreds of thousands of sub- sub- subscribers. I want what you're doing. I want to do what you're doing. I'm get, I'm starting to be a pilot now. I want to fill my path. I want to re- re- document my path. What kind of recommendations or tips would you give them? Or maybe things that you've learned that didn't work or just someone listening right now that wants to be a content creator and a pilot and mixing that together. What tips, recommendations would you give them right now listening to this? Yeah, so the biggest tip, um, we already touched on it a lot earlier, is obviously do it in a safe, approved way. Aviation and media are really challenging when they mix. Finding a way of making sure you're following the regulations and not like impeding on um, company policies and things like that is very important. In, in terms of content production, though, there's a ton of people out there who can take pictures and create videos that um, the content never takes off. And for me, I guess the, the reason I've noticed that is because they don't have a storyline. So everything that I produce in terms of a video, everything that I produce in terms of a post, um, all has a specific mission. I'm trying to help teach somebody a specific something, whether that's about training, whether that's about a travel tip, whether that's 
about um, a different career in aviation. I always want the viewer or the subscriber to take away something that they can use in their own life. So finding a way of teaching people is one of the most influential and powerful things that you can do as a, as a content creator. And for me, I, I discovered my niche was showing people the airline life, showing people what it was like to go through airline training, um, showing people the ins and outs of what to expect when you show up for ground school, things like that. So find a way of teaching somebody um, something valuable, tangible that they can take with them. Because in the end, even if that's not the thing that might get the most views, that's the thing that will provide the most value. And it will provide you with a group of subscribers and followers um, that are eager to learn from what you're teaching. And you might even find the opportunity one day where you can make that into a business for yourself, teaching and partnering with people to show some of the careers. That's the best way that you can do it, in my opinion. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think that you do a good job of doing that and you need to make sure you're providing value. You need to make sure that with everything you do, you kind of have a reason for it and why someone would take something out of this. Uh, I, making content is is tough. It's not easy. I mean, you go to YouTube and there's a lot of people that maybe only have 500 subscribers, but they make great content. It, it's hard to, now I feel like it's harder to be found. It's harder to be seen and to kind of, uh, to maybe get the, the following that you have or a Captain Joe has or someone like that. So it's definitely difficult and it, it can be hard. So, I mean, I, I think it's, you just have to keep going and, and keep building your own community and just let it go, let it grow. Yeah, hundred percent. And like I said, I, you know, try to try to focus less on meeting the threshold of views and subscriber counts initially than like what you said, you know, try to provide value to people, try to teach them something because in the end, that's, that's the best growth that you can have. It's not about having necessarily a million views. It's about having 10,000 or 20,000 viewers who actually wanted to watch who were 70% of the people are watching the entire video because they really wanted to learn that. Those are people that are valuable viewers in the end. It's, it's not necessarily just getting the highest count. Um, at least that's what I've found in my specific career path. I know that, that other content streams and things like that operate a little bit differently, but that's the method that I've I've sort of tried to hone in on. Yeah, and that's hard. That's easier said than done. So obviously you focus more on views and subscribers and money earned by doing this, but I'd say creating content, whether it's a podcast, whether it's YouTube, a blog, whatever it may be, it is similar to flying where you're not getting into this for the money. You're creating content because this is what you love to do. As soon as you start chasing money or you start chasing subscribers or views, that's when you're going to be unhappy and you're not going to see the, the growth that you necessarily want. And it's going to make your life a lot easier where if you can focus on, hey, I'm doing this just because I love it and you can do it from a pure sense of love, that's when your content is really going to, is going to grow and people will buy in. Yeah. And, you know, I would rather have 10,000 subscribers who are people who absolutely want to become a pilot, who are um, passionate about this, who are watching every minute of every video than 100,000 people who don't actually care about the content. You know, that's kind of the way that I think about it. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. And if you want to come, I, I always encourage people to create. It is one of the best things that you can do and can help you out in your life in so many ways and just be a good way to give back. So I encourage anyone to create a YouTube channel, create a podcast, just do just do something, just be creative and, and create. Yep, exactly. I, I agree. So I uh, I asked a couple questions, or I asked for a couple questions. I know we're kind of running out of time, so I'll ask a couple of them. But uh, one of them, well, three people, uh, Mr. Craig, uh, Max Resh underscore 17, and Mock.Niner, all, or no, sorry, Mock.Niner and Mr. Craig all asked specifically about 46015 and uh, Chipotle burritos. <laughs> is there, a, is there a story behind that? 
Yeah. So all those guys, um, I went to UND with and, uh, both, both, uh, Craig and, um, Andrew Mock, the Mock Point Niner guy, they, um, they were involved in 46015 with me. It was this old 1960s airplane that I leased with a few friends when I was at UND. And that's what we used for the Chipotle burrito run, um, that ended up kind of blowing up, uh, not, not a ton of views, but Chipotle media actually found it. So they tweeted, um, their marketing director messaged me. They sent us like 500 to a thousand dollars of free Chipotle gift cards and like all this stuff for, for taking the initiative to fly down to Fargo to go pick up uh, Chipotle for our friends in the, uh, in the dorms, which was hilarious. So cool. It's funny enough. I just ordered Chipotle a little bit before we had this. So I'm going to get Chipotle after this. So I don't know if it was Chipotle inception or what. So (laughs) that's pretty funny. Good way to use your plane and get some Chipotle food, right? Yeah, it was awesome. I I miss that that old airplane a lot. I miss having access to something that was just waiting for me at the airport. And I hope I get back to that one day. That's cool. All right, man. Uh, Those are pretty much all the questions I have for you for the specific podcast. I have one more section left and it's called the rapid fire section. This is just going to be a bunch of questions where I'm going to rattle off aviation centric questions. And you say the first and uh, quickest answer you can possibly come up with. All right. All right. So the first one's going to be, what is your favorite airplane? Now this is three tiers. It's going to be an airline, a corporate jet, and a smaller piston airplane. So what is your favorite airline airplane? Airliner. I'd say the Boeing 787. Uh, You're not going to say the Embraer 145? Come on, man. (laughs) You know, I love the 145, but I need a little more headroom. I I don't like having to duck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. Uh, What about corporate jet? Uh, I I really love the Gulfstream. I think it's a beautiful airplane. Um, The newer ones are just awesome. I've been on board a few times. Haven't flown in any though. Small piston. Uh, so it could be a piston twin, could be a, uh, a, a tail wheel, could be anything, just anything with a piston engine. 100% the carbon cub. I've flown them on floats. I've flown them with Tundra tires. They're so, so fun. I would love to fly that airplane more. I like it. That's a good answer. They're expensive, but they're awesome. All right. I get some flack for this, for my answer for this question. So here it is. It is, what is the ugliest airplane? I personally think the Piaggio is really ugly. Now it's a great airplane. It can do so many great things. I just think it looks ugly. Do you have a plane that you look at and you're just like, dang, that's unfortunate. Whoever gets to fly that, they have to fly an ugly airplane. Man, I actually don't know. I, I guess uh, the one that comes to my mind first, but I also think it's kind of cool looking is the shorts. Oh, you know, like the yeah. old cargo shorts. It looks like a flying shoebox. Looks um, like it should that's fly. That's definitely like, yeah, it looks like it should not fly and it really doesn't. They're very, very slow, but I would say that's probably not on the the prettiest airplanes list. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. All right, here's another one. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Ooh, I wish I knew before I became a pilot um, how the lifestyle and career impacts time away from home. So how much your schedule and your life turns into a series of dates and times um, that manages your entire life around when you're home and when you're not. Yeah, that's good. Definitely. Uh, who in the industry would you like to meet most? They could be living. They could have died. Either one, just someone in the industry that has done a lot for this community that you would love to have the opportunity to have dinner with a flight with whatever. Man, the first one that came to my mind, I never got to meet Bob Hoover. Um, I had a few friends who met him at Oshkosh and I just, you know, from sort of all the stories and, and legends about him, I wish that I had had the opportunity to kind of sit down and just chat and meet with him since he was one of the living legends of aviation. Yeah, Bob Hoover's the man. I wish I would have had the opportunity to meet him or go fly in a commander with him. Sounds like you'd have some fun. Oh, yeah. What is your favorite overall thing about aviation? I'd say the friends that I make um, in aviation, 100% the favorite thing. 
we all share a common passion. It's like an instant click with somebody that you meet who's a pilot. Um, and having that network of, of support all around you is just so unique to this industry. What's the hardest approach you've ever had to fly? The hardest approach I, I'd say for me was probably the expressway visual into LaGuardia at night. Um, you have to, you make a really sharp turn around city field stadium onto the runway in LaGuardia and doing that at night in a fully configured jet is, uh, is challenging, but it's also fun. What's your favorite approach? Favorite approach is the visual approach into Kapalua, West Maui. Um, you fly right over the center channel between Molokai Lanai and uh, Maui. And in the winter around February, there's there's humpback whales breaching with their uh, their pups and stuff like that. So it's it's beautiful on the side of the hill there. That's cool. All right. What about your favorite airport to land at? Favorite airport you've ever landed at? So if you could, if you could only land at one more airport, last flight ever, where would you want to land? Again, it would it would be Kahului, excuse me, um, Kapalua, West Maui, just because of how gorgeous it is sitting right there on the side of a volcano. Um, beautiful, beautiful part of Hawaii. If you could never land at another airport ever again, so it's your, your overall least favorite airport, do you have one and what would it be? I feel like I'm being repetitive, but I would also say LaGuardia. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> the runways are in bad shape. It's That's stressful. Um, it, the delays are horrendous. I, I wouldn't, if I could never go back there, I would choose not to. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? And this could be, let's do like your own personal plane. Like obviously when you're flying it for the airlines, you have to fly IFR. But let's say you, you bought yourself a carbon cub that's IFR capable. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Oh, VFR, 100%. What is, you have 30 minutes in between a, a quick turn. You're on, you're like, you have six legs ahead or five legs for the day and you're on leg three. You are starving. You need some food. You are at an airport that has any food you could ever imagine. What's your go-to airport food? I think my go-to right now in Chicago is Burrito Beach or the Farmer's Fridge um, machines that have like really good salads and pasta and stuff like that. I'll have to check. I haven't been to the Burrito Beach before. I, I've seen the oh, Farmer's so Fridge. Good. All right, yeah. I'll have to check it out next time. Are they open right now or are they closed? I don't, I think they are open. Right. I haven't been to the airport in a while, so. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? I guess, unless it means you're not flying. Right. All right, I got a couple more for you. Uh, Airbus, Boeing, or Embraer? Probably Boeing. Favorite airline livery? Ooh, um, I'd, I'd say uh, Air New Zealand. The black Air New Zealand uh, library is awesome. They had a, um, a 787, I believe. No, maybe not a 787, but they had an Air New Zealand plane parked out at, at uh, O'Hare for the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you saw that or not. Yeah, I did see. Um, those airplanes look so cool. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, what is the hardest check ride you've ever had to take? Hardest check ride, I would say, was my um, final multi-commercial instrument check ride at UND. It's all built into one, so you do sort of a check ride that encompasses all three of those things. Okay. That was the biggest prep I've ever done for a check ride. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather fly over mountains, the beach, or cities? Beach. 100%. Uh, let's see what is... All right, this one will be probably be easy. Would you rather fly a CRJ or an ERJ as a pilot? Ooh, I like the ERJ. I really do. Um, it's easy. It's a forgiving airplane. It's right. fun. Now, on the count of that, would you rather fly on an ERJ or a CRJ as a passenger? And the 170, 175 does not count because that plane is comfortable. So you can't pick it. So between a 200 and a uh, 145. Ooh, I would still pick the 145. We have less headroom, but... On the A side where you're the only passenger sitting on that side, there's big windows, you're by yourself, you don't have anybody next to you, I would always pick the 145. Hyper or Cessna? Uh, Cessna. 141 training versus 61. You pretty much already answered that, but I'll ask you again. I'll probably do 141. All right. Outside of American Airlines and Envoy, what is... Or no, how about this? 
what is your favorite airline? So you have the opportunity to fly to your dream destination. You get to fly in business class. You can choose whatever airline you'd ever want to fly. What would it be? Um, I, you know, I've flown on Emirates a few times and that might not be like the most popular answer based on industry stuff, but I actually did really enjoy flying on Emirates a few times. Jealous. I like it. Those are good. That's a good answer. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. Yeah. Swain, congratulations, man. You are officially done with the Pilots Pilot podcast. I appreciate you coming on, man. It's a, it was great talking to you about, uh, just your career, your path and how you have just integrated social media. You've integrated YouTube and you've created such a great kind of community and you're able to, to teach, to, to show people inside information that we haven't been able to see before and what kind of flying you do. And I encourage you to keep going and keep uh, challenging yourself to, to make some great content and uh, just keep going, man. I appreciate coming on and sharing your story. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and congrats on, on the success of your, your podcast as well with over a hundred different interviews so far. It looks like you're doing really, really well. Appreciate it, man. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 120 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Like I said, if you have ever wanted to write articles, have a podcast, send me an email, pilottopilothq at gmail.com. Looking to create uh, something special, looking to create a voice for the new generation so we can make our statement as well. AV Nation, I hope everyone's staying safe. Hope you enjoying these podcasts. Oh, one last thing I want to let you guys know. I don't know if we're going to be continuing the two a week. It just seems to be a little bit too much for myself and uh, my editor, Kevin. It's just a lot. Flying starting to pick up again. So we might have to go back to one a week. We're kind of figuring that out right now, but uh, I'll keep you updated with that on Instagram as well. Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.